Welcome to a single serving podcast. I'm your host, Shaney Silver, and I started this podcast because whenever I see content for single women, it's about dating, and I think we deserve more than that. I also want to change the way being single is discussed in society because I think that affects the way single women feel about what we are, and I think we deserve to feel amazing because being single doesn't actually suck, and I wanted to create a podcast to prove it. If you're feeling frustrated or exhausted with single life, you found the right podcast. I also really encourage everyone listening to join the Facebook group for this podcast as well. It's become a really supportive community. There are people meeting up in real life. It's fantastic. So get in there. Thank you so much for joining me on a single serving podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Happy New Year to all a single serving podcast listeners. Thank you for riding out the break with me. I really appreciate you guys uh, giving me a couple weeks off to rest and rejuvenate and watch a shitload of Netflix. Um, As you're listening to this, it is Monday, January 6th, 2020. But as I'm recording it, I'm still in 2019. So essentially, I'm a time traveler. I'm really, really excited to share this episode with you, but I don't need to tell you that because you're about to listen to me fangirl so fucking hard, it's ridiculous, because my guest today is Bella DiPaolo. Bella has been one of the foremost, if not the foremost, voices in this single space for essentially the last decade. She's been writing on Psychology Today, and you I have no doubt you've seen her articles already. They've been shared in the Facebook group. They've been shared everywhere. She really has so much insight and research and so many profound things to say about single life. I literally, I, I'm so excited, like I don't have the words, um, which is weird because I'm a writer and I should have the words, but I don't because she's amazing. Um, you'll hear that very soon. You will also hear me just essentially lose my shit throughout this entire episode. I do want to apologize in advance for the sound on Bella's end. There is a little bit of a like an airy sound to her recording, but that's kind of just what we have to roll with because I'm making podcast magic on two different coasts at the same time, which is insane. So I'm going to go ahead and start the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you have a chance to check out my patreon which is something that helps independent podcasters keep on podcasting there's a link to it below in the show notes there's also going to be links to bella's work bella's books her website everything i really encourage you to check out her work and read it because she's absolutely brilliant and i'm so grateful that i got to meet her so i'm really happy to share this with you i hope you enjoy So just to start out really briefly, I want everyone listening to know that essentially for me today, I am speaking with a rock star. That's what you need to be aware of. I am speaking with Bella DiPaolo, who is one of the foremost voices in the single space. I think the first time I read an article of hers on Psychology Today, I like screamed and like threw my laptop across the room because everything that I've thought and felt for so long, she has been speaking far more eloquently than me and in a far more researched and in-depth manner for at least a decade, if not longer. So Bella, welcome to the podcast. I am so honored to be speaking with you. I am so happy. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. That was such a wonderful introduction. And I love your work too. Thank you for everything you are doing. Thank you. Thank you. That's so much fun. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Okay. I, I literally even, even in planning out this interview, I didn't know where to start. So I think just as a baseline, if you could let everybody know who you are and what you do, that's probably a good jumping off point. Okay, I'm Bella DiPaolo. I'm a social scientist. I was trained as a social scientist. I started out my career studying the psychology of lying and detecting lies. But then I started keeping these notes, these secret notes, about what I was noticing about how people were treating me and wondering if it had anything to do with whether I was single or if it was something else that I just didn't understand. So I can come back and tell you a little bit more about that. But then, so then I kept notes secretly for a long time. Then I started very tentatively approaching other single people and asking them if they had any of the experiences I had. And oh my gosh, there was an avalanche of responses. So then I realized you know, this is really something I want to pursue. I really care about this. Other people care about it. So I decided to write a book that wasn't just going to be for other people in in universities and colleges. So that's when I wrote Singled Out. And then after I wrote Singled Out, I got asked to write the Living Single blog for Psychology Today. And then after that, I got asked to do other things and got to do that TEDx talk. And Uh, And so it just became the center of my life, and it's been 
it's been so exciting to get to think and write and talk about what I care about more than anything else. It's, we're very grateful that you do it. And I think, um, I will obviously link to Singled Out and to many of your books below in the show notes, but I, um, I was admittedly like a little bit overwhelmed in looking through all of your books. I didn't know where to start, but I'm really glad that I picked Singled Out because it's essentially like a a primer into everything that you Uh, talk about. I highly, highly recommend it to absolutely anyone who is feeling like alone or invalid in any way. It's, it's an absolute must read and I will link to it below. Add to cart immediately. Um, So thank you so much. That was my firstborn and it's still my favorite. (laughs) I hope to have a firstborn one day. I'm in. Yeah. I'm trying my best, and one day I will. But I love, and you have so many more after it as well, which is why I was so overwhelmed. I'm like, I have no idea which one because I tend to, if I'm getting, uh, if I'm getting started reading a writer's work, sometimes I start with the most recent one because I feel like that is like the most current for yeah. some reason. But um, yeah. I'm really glad I started with Singled Out, and I would recommend that to everybody. <laughs> um, so I I got into this space in around 2013. Um, in a very different capacity than I do it now. I was writing for like Exo Jane and Huffington Post and other sites like that about my dating experiences because I was doing a lot of dating back then. Mm-hmm. And I was writing out of anger. And even my my former writing teachers used to tell me they were really perplexed by how like violent anger led to such great <laughs> writing. <laughs> like I was yeah. using that anger and I guess I'm an anger writer. I don't know, but I was channeling that into my work. And eventually, thankfully, it evolved into really changing my mindset around being single and hopefully trying to help other single women change their mindset because I've found that it has actually made me feel so much better and so much less alone. So that's really how I got into this. But I'm, I'm curious as to how, like, how, how did you become, like, this foremost voice in the single space? Like, how did, you, how did you get into this and really, like, sort of own this as your space? Right. So um, it started with personal experiences. So, for example, when I started my very first job at a university, um, I moved to a place where I knew no one. I went there for the job. So it really mattered to me that I become friends with the people who, who were my colleagues, at least as a starting point. And so one of the very first weekends, I had an invitation to go out of town. And I turned it down because I wanted to be there in case my colleagues were socializing. I wanted to be able to join them and start to get to know them. Well, they were socializing. And everybody was invited who was, but not me. And all the other people who were invited were couples. And that went on. So during the week, they'd invite me to lunch. You know, as things went on over time, like on the weekends, they would invite me to their children's birthday parties, but not to dinner and a movie on a Saturday night. And so what I was wondering was, um, is it because I'm single or maybe they just don't like me? You know, maybe during the week they invite me because it feels more like, you know, a, a work thing that they have to include. And then other things happen, like um, <laughs> the person who arranged the teaching schedule asked me to come in and teach at night because she said it's too hard for the married professors to come back. And that was even before any of them had kids. So it's hard for someone to come back because they have a spouse. Are you effing kidding <laughs> And so I I started this folder where I just kept tabs of all these different experiences. And it was secret for a long time. And then at some point I decided I have to find out if other people are experiencing this. So very tentatively, the, the first time I went up to somebody I knew who was single at a social event, but I didn't know her very well. And I told her about some of my experiences and I said, do you ever have this experience of being treated differently because you're single? Oh, wow, did she ever. So she started telling me. And then some other people joined us, and they started telling their stories. Then some other people joined us. It got to be this big circle. We talked for hours. The next day, I turned on my email, and I have these messages from people saying, saying, oh, and another thing. So that was like, wow, people are interested in that. 
And then, like a month or two later, I got invited to give a talk at another university. And it was a talk about deception because I was doing the lying research at the time. But afterwards, um, they had a reception for me. So I thought, let me try this again. And the same thing happened. So that's when I realized there is something going on. And I don't want to just talk to fellow you know, social scientists who, you know, do research studies, although I do want to talk to them. So that's when I decided I needed to write a book about it, and I went to a writer's conference to try to figure out how to, you know, the only writing I had done up to then was academics. So, (laughs) although at the time, I had just written my first thing that I tried to submit somewhere decent, which was an op-ed called Sex and the Single Voter about the 2004 election and the dumb things people were saying to try to appeal to single voters. And it got, it, my very first thing, it got accepted at the New York Times, which is like amazing. That <laughs> is amazing. But I went to this writer's conference and I told the person who was, I sent a copy to the person who was organizing it because I think I was late in applying because I had just decided, okay, I need to do this. And he looked at it and he said, oh, this is cute. What? <laughs> yeah, anyway. So, <laughs> so that was, you know, the New York Times and then having this book contract and then the book coming out. And, and so it's just kind of, you know, once you, have, once you can grab onto one little piece of credibility, it kind of helps you grab onto the next one and gets people interested. And... And of course, when other people are interested, then that makes me more interested. <laughs> and so it, it just got to be something that, that other people seem to want to hear about and that I never got sick of talking about and thinking about and writing about. So here I am. I love that. I've had a very similar experience. I didn't realize that community was going to be such a huge part of doing this work. I thought yeah. that I was just kind of throwing things out into the void and hopefully people were reading them and enjoying them. But I didn't realize that the real like work is the connection to other people. I know you are on Facebook as well and have a community there. And I've done a very similar thing with this podcast. And it's been just mind blowing seeing people come together and share stories that are so similar. Yeah. And they feel so much less alone when they're hearing stories that are um, that someone else has lived and they feel less alone in that way. But because I know that this audience will be curious and ask, um, yeah. was there ever a point in your life that you wanted to partner and sort of end your single time? Or has this always been a way that you choose to live your life? <laughs> okay, so I'm 66. So when I was in high school and college, which of course was back in the Stone Age, I never heard of such a thing as not wanting to partner. I never heard of such a thing as living a happy single life. I just thought everybody wants to get coupled and get married. Now, I didn't want that, but I just thought I was kind of slow in getting there. So I thought like wanting to get married was like getting bitten by a bug. <laughs> and I just didn't get hang on bitten yet. So I, I went along with the program. So, you know, there were people I dated and went out with for a while. And I have no dating horror stories. None. Every guy I dated was totally fine. Some of them I even kind of liked. <laughs> no. You know, I can think back and I have these fond memories. But every time the relationship ended, I was so relieved. I was so happy to go back to the life that I loved, my single life. And I don't know when I realized, I wish I could remember when I realized that my love of single life was never going to change, that I was never going to be bitten by a marriage bug, that this is who I am. Because once I figured that out, you know, everything changed. Then I could just totally commit to my single life. I wasn't kind of wondering, well, you know, I love living alone now, but maybe at some point I really want to move in with someone. No, never, ever, ever. (laughs) 
I felt the exact same way about motherhood. I thought that it was a bug that I was just waiting to get bitten by and that one day I would wake up and all of a sudden I would want to be a mother. But I'm 37 now and it's never shown up. And as soon as I admitted to myself, like, I don't think you want this at all, ever. It felt so great. Yes, yes. And so one of the things I want to do, which I think you're doing too, is... Get that idea out there. We don't all have to live the same kind of life. And in fact, it's great if we don't. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not a good thing if all women think they have to be mothers. And people who don't want to do it and are bad at it and are going to be, if they feel crushed to be mothers, that's not good for them. And it certainly isn't good for their supposed kids. I know. I know. It's, I mean, it's like... It's one of those taboo topics like you really can't talk about like mothers who maybe shouldn't have had their kids for, you know, nobody wants to talk about that. It's a horrible subject. Nobody wants to be a part of that conversation, nor do I. I want everybody to like be happy with their life decisions and be happy in, in what they've chosen to do. But, yeah. you know, the reality is sometimes it happens. I think it's I think it's OK to like determine for yourself what you want to do rather than just sort of following this linear yeah. path that we've all been raised into. Absolutely. Um, so I love your work for many reasons, um, specifically the ways that you point out how single people are treated differently by society. And you've Mm -hmm. done so much work in this space and you've really, you cover the entire spread of the ways that we are treated differently the way, I mean, there, I mean, it's, I'll let you talk about it because you are far more able to do this than me, but in your opinion, what is the most harmful way that single people are societally disadvantaged oh okay so i think there are two levels of that one is the really serious stuff that can really hurt you in as a single person in ways that are almost indisputable then there's the kind of second level of kind of everyday relentless you might think of as microaggressive and I think it's really easy for people to blow those off and, and to make you feel badly if you even mention them. Um, but, but they're there. So start with the, the big, impactful things. So when I first started, for example, when I wrote Single Out, I was very careful to say that I'm not claiming that singleism, which is my word for the you know, stereotyping, stigmatizing, discrimination against single people. I was not saying that singleism is as vile or as vicious or as life-threatening as other isms like racism or, or heterosexism or, or some of the others. So no one has ever been lynched for being single or um, dragged to their death at the back of a pickup truck or there's never been separate drinking fountains for single and married people. But as I continue to do this, and especially in the past year, there is growing evidence of ways in which single people really are discriminated against in ways that are life-threatening. For example, there's a study that came out during this past year about judgments of who deserves a life-saving organ transplant. And the authors found that if there's a married person and a single person who both need it, people think the married person should get it just because they're married. That's life-threatening. And then Joan Delfatour has done this whole other program of research on how oncologists regard their single and married patients. And she found, looking at this huge database of studies, that they undertreat their single patients because they think their single patients can't handle the most aggressive treatment. And she looked, she read these articles and looked at what people were saying in their articles about single and married patients. And they would say things like, seriously, in medical journals, Single people don't have the fighting spirit that married people have. They don't have the will to live. I mean, clearly they haven't met me. Yeah, really. (laughs) 
that's unbelievable. But wow. And so these are examples in which in which singleism, prejudice against single people is life threatening. You're not getting the same quality of treatment you would get if you were married. Now another example is comes from um, just looking at federal laws in the United States. There are more than a thousand federal laws that benefit and protect you only if you are officially married. A lot of the advocacy for same-sex, for the legalization of same-sex marriage was built on that, although that wasn't the only thing. Of course, they wanted respectability and all the rest, too. Um, and, you know, that's a really big deal. So I can work side-by-side side with a married colleague the same number of years, the same job, do just as well or even better. But when my married colleague dies, they can leave their Social Security to a spouse. Mine goes back into the system. I can't leave it to anyone, and no one can leave it to me. And that's just one example of more than a thousand. It's 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 hard to hear. It, yeah. it really is. It's hard to read in your books. It's like hard to see it because it. I mean, I almost daily have discussions about the financial benefits of being partnered or being married, and mm-hmm. the how much harder it is financially yeah. to be a single person, particularly a single woman. Um, yeah. It's hard to hear. It's really hard to hear. And I think sometimes I think this work, I mean, I, I've i seen it online. I've seen responses to my work where it's sometimes not taken very seriously. Right. Um, but it's a very serious matter sometimes. It's, it, it is. It's, it is. Yeah, it's a little overwhelming to even think about all the ways that, that single people are just, just in general treated a little bit less than, you know. Yes. But the legal ones, the ones that impact my right. bank account, are, frankly, are the ones that irritate me the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think, though, so apart from like the, the tangible ways that single people are treated differently from those in marriages or partnerships, I would imagine that those differences and those, those laws and those treatment plans, apparently, have other effects as well that just sort of affect, affect us personally, affect us emotionally. Mm-hmm. What do you... How do you think that the way that society treats single people is impacting us overall? And then on top of that, what would you suggest to someone listening to sort of combat those negative effects or sort of those societal misconceptions about us? Right. Yeah. Um, I do think it matters because even the little stuff, I mean, the kinds of things you've talked about, like, you know, getting, when you visit somebody else, getting put the, on the couch in the living room instead of in a bedroom with a door that shuts. Oh my God, I can't. <laughs> or constantly having to give gifts to other people to celebrate their accomplishments when nobody ever celebrates anything in the lives of single people. All that stuff. I mean, to other people it sounds little, and maybe it is, but it's every single day. It's relentless. It just adds up. And I think it does have the potential to have an impact. I mean, it's hard not to internalize these relentless messages that if you're single, you're lesser than. You're just not as important as everybody else. You're not as grown up. You're not as consequential. And so what I, one of my favorite things to do is to flip the script. You know, they think there's something wrong with me. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. I think there's something wrong with them. Seriously, you know, and I have found this, that people I know who are brilliant people, who think of themselves as the most open-minded people, who would not in a million, million years ever express or even think a bigoted thing about another person based on their race or their sexual identity or gender identity or age or anything else, are totally fine dismissing single people. And what I think about that is, what's wrong with you? (laughs) How is it that you are such a smart, savvy, sophisticated person, and you bought into the fairy tales? You really think that just because you got coupled or you got married, that that makes you a better person than me. You should be embarrassed. 
what's wrong with you? So that's how I turn the tables. And to me, it's not just a technique. I kind of really think it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we've had the time. Like we've been given the gift of a single adulthood and that sort of time and space lets right. you evaluate things from a different perspective and lets you see. Yeah. Yes. We've all just been sort of led down this path like sheep. And we've like broken off from the herd and we have time to reflect on things. Um, So my next question for you overall is, in your opinion, what is the biggest misconception about single women or about single people in general? And I asked this following viewing your TED talk, wherein you talked about people's happiness. That's my favorite. The assumption that single people are unhappy and married people are happy is such bullshit. And all you have to do is go to dinner with a married person to figure that out. (laughs) Or watch people. You know, if you go into a restaurant and you see the couples that aren't talking to each other, you know, they're the married ones. (laughs) I hate being mean and like laughing about it, but they've been mean to me forever. So I kind of don't care. Yeah, really. one of them and yeah. it's and what really is hard about that one is that it seems to have the backing of social science behind it and I you know I'm a social scientist I taught graduate courses in research methods for decades and um, when I first started looking at the original research reports not just going by what the headlines and newspapers told me but going to the actual research I was stunned to find what those studies were like. Those studies could never, ever show that getting married made people happier. And then when they finally did the the better studies where you follow the same people over time, you find that when people go from being single to to either moving in together or married, they sometimes get (laughs) And then they go back to being as happy or as unhappy as they were when they were single. And the people who get that little, you know, honeymoon effect, only the people who get married and stay married enjoy that. The people who are headed to divorce, because these studies follow the same people for years and years and years, so they know how they turn out. The people who end up getting divorced, when their wedding day is approaching, they are already getting a little bit less happy so they don't even get that initial honeymoon effect oh that's just heartbreaking for a lot of reasons but it's also it's breaking a lot of it's breaking a lot of stereotypes and it's like it's challenging what we've been sort of taught to think absolutely and then it's even worse for health there's this this huge study um of people and, and how their health changes over time once they get married. And that one st- showed that when people describe their overall health, they describe it becoming a little worse after they got married than that was when they were single, which flies in the face of everything we have been taught and, and conditioned to accept about what it means to be single versus married. So those are two of them. Another one is um, the idea that what single people want more than anything else in the world. So the other one is that what single people want more than anything else in the world is to become unsingle. That that's their life goal, to escape the single life. So, you know, and of course some single people do want that. But to assume that every single person wants that and they want it all the time and it's the most important thing in their life is crazy. And yet it's really something that a lot of people believe. I like telling the truth, don't you? I like like talking way more truth than 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 what's portrayed about us or what's commonly discussed about us or the way that we're treated. Yeah. socially among couples I like telling more truth it's I feel like it's easier to tell truth among ourselves mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that this is where it starts and it it will balloon out from us after I, that yes that's my hope too in watching your TED talk one thing that stood out to me a lot um, from seeing you in person rather than just reading your work is that you seem to be kind of a living myth buster and the myth that you're busting is that um the assumption and the media portrayal regarding single women is that we're unhappy. 
Mm-hmm. And that we're just these sort of sad sacks of human beings yeah. that are just like so desperate to change what we are and to fix what we are because there's something wrong with us. You seem genuinely happy and have this like joy for life about you. At least when you're like on a stage yeah. at a TED talk, like discussing this, it's it's challenging the idea that single women are unhappy in the best way possible. And I'm wondering where you think your happiness comes from and what advice you would have for somebody hoping to feel more of that own happiness and satisfaction with their own life. Because I, I love discussing this stuff and I love talking with people who essentially like we're, we think a lot of the same things, but I also Mm want to make sure that we're giving a real resource to people who are listening that can hopefully take something away from this that will help them as well. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, you know, single life really suits me. I love living single. And every day of my life, I feel grateful that I live at a time and in a place where I can live a full, complete, fulfilling and meaningful life as a single person. And that wasn't always possible. I mean, even here in the United States, a few decades ago, um, women were less likely to be able to support themselves financially if they didn't get married. So they were tethered to a husband for mere economic survival. And I am so grateful that that isn't me. (laughs) And um, I think that if it were still a time when I felt like I had to get married to survive or I never did realize that there was any other way, then I would be I would be one of those miserably married persons, and I would need um, advice from other people about how to be happy when you're married, because I wouldn't be able to do it. So it's not that, I don't think it's that I'm intrinsically happy person, but I'm an intrinsically happily single person. Single is what makes me happy. Would you say that you've sort of like tailored your life to be exactly what you want it to be? Yes, yes, it's amazing. And in fact, um, one of the big, big examples of that is when I moved from the University of Virginia to UCSB out, out on the West Coast for what was supposed to be a one-year sabbatical. And I loved it out in California so much that I didn't want to go back. And when the end of the one year was up, or almost up, I remember walking the beach with somebody else, a fellow, we call them UVA escapees, because there are a number of us here who started out out there and came out here and never went back. And, and I was telling her how I just didn't want to go back. And she said, well, don't. <laughs> and the thing was, I didn't have a job at UCSB. You know, I, was, I had a visiting professorship, but nothing that paid. And I just decided to take this huge risk and move to California, which I had come to love. And I also decided that I would commit to what I really wanted to do, which was to focus my life on the study of single people and give up, pretty much give up this area of expertise where I was a known and established expert in the psychology of lying and detecting lies. And, you know, I think if I were married, even if I had the most wonderfully accommodating spouse, I would feel reluctant to impose that huge risk, financial and otherwise, on someone else. But for me to do this, because I thought, this is what I want my life to be about. I want to live out here. I want to study what I really care about. I jumped at it. And, you know, except for the fact of not having a regular salary all the time, you know, and living in a very expensive place, um, I love it. And, you know, it has turned out beautifully. And it's something that I got to do because I'm single. I think that's fantastic. I'm so glad you got to do it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I love tailoring our lives to look the way that we want them to look. I find a lot of joy in that. I've just recently given a bunch of 
like holiday advice to to my audience not in a like survive the holidays kind of fashion because I don't believe in that I don't think we should have to survive them while everyone else gets to live them and enjoy them but Mm -hmm. one of the ways that I think it can be easier if you have in prior years felt a little bit down at this time of year is to really tailor your holiday season to look at like you want it to look I think we get lost often, yeah. especially those who are who are very actively dating and, you know, still in like partnership pursuit is what I sometimes call it. It can be yeah. hard to stop and take a step back and realize like you get to make all of the decisions all of the time. There's no one to run anything by. It's all up to you. It's another reason I love solo travel. I don't have to run my 6 a.m. sightseeing by anyone. I can just go out there and do it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Are there yeah. any other like that's one of the ways that I think it's it's been easier for me to like sort of increase my happiness quotient with being single but are there any yeah. other ways that you found that um single women or single people can integrate more satisfaction with their single lives or happiness with their single lives or steps that they can take to um to really feel better yeah so i think what you were saying is one of the main ones so think about even if let's say you're a single person who really doesn't want to be single i don't want to stay single for the long term think about the things that you really want to do that maybe you wouldn't do once you got coupled. Do them. And the other thing is, give yourself credit. If you try to do something, like travel by yourself or go out to dinner by yourself, but or whatever it is, and it, and it really is hard for you, and it didn't turn out to be the great joyous experience that you hoped it would be, give yourself credit for trying. Because lots of people don't even make an effort. And the other thing I think is to find these communities like yours, like mine. Mine is the online Facebook group, the community of single people. And, you know, share what you're thinking about there. Um, Our community, uh, community of single people started in the summer of 2015. It now has about 4,000 people from more than 100 countries. I mean, most of them are in the United States, but, but there are over 100 countries. And we are mostly people who embrace our single lives, but there are people there who are not so sure, they're having trouble with things, and they say, this is my, this is my issue. Any thoughts? And it's a wonderfully supportive community for the most part. And so I think that's, uh, when I first started, I didn't know what would happen, but um, it has really been, I think it's been wonderful. Now, to in you know full disclosure, it's not always wonderful. There's this odd thing that happens that some people really don't like it when we talk about symbolism. You know, the ways that we're, that we're stereotyped, stigmatized. Um, they see it as whining, and they say, oh, I came in here to this community for support, and all you people are just big crybabies. And so that explodes periodically. Um, and and that kind of makes me sad, but it's, you know, it's reflective of what's going on out there that you will, you know you will, you're at risk for getting bashed, for complaining about anything about single life it's like oh that's so ridiculous you're just a a bitter single person so there are single people who don't want to get um blamed for that or thought of in that way and so they put down other people other single people who do want to talk about these things but that aside my truth in advertising (laughs) i think it's mostly been um a really good thing I think it's a beautiful thing. I've had a very similar experience in my own group, which is hands down the most supportive group I've ever been a member of on Facebook. But I've gotten feedback that um, there are there have been members of the group that don't like it when we discuss dating in the Facebook group. And I, I've never given the impression that dating wasn't a topic that was allowed. I've very clearly said all topics are allowed. Um, yeah. But I think that coming into the group and, and having read my work, there is an assumption that this is sort of like a safe space free from dating because I don't put up with any kind of online dating nonsense. I don't do it anymore. It's, it's out of my life, but I'm definitely not anti dating. I think if you want to do that and it's making you happy, mazel, go ahead. But 
it's it's hard to I think it's hard to make everybody happy and I think I, right. so I, it's the opposite in the community of single people where that's my one rule we don't talk about dating yeah. so I should I, go to you yeah right but then we sometimes get people who are mad about that because they do want to talk about dating so I'll send them to you <laughs> okay perfect perfect we'll exchange audience members I love right, it I love right. it um, so my, uh, my next question for you is, you've kind of answered this already in the previous one, but I was wondering if you have ever, or if you do ever feel lonely as a single person, and if so, how do you deal with that? And are there any ways that you recommend finding more community and friendship to sort of, um, manage that loneliness? Yeah, um, I'm someone who just loves solitude. I love my alone time. So it takes a lot for me to get lonely. But I had kind of a natural experience once, a few years ago, when um, just by chance, the people I see, all the people I see sort of semi-regularly, were all either away or they were otherwise preoccupied all at the same time. And so I decided not to do what I might do ordinarily, which is like go to the secondary and other people I don't see that often. It's, oh, you want to get together. <laughs> um, but just go with it and see how it felt for me. And the first week it was awesome, <laughs> you know. I thought this is really great. I mean, I had it was just me, no one else. <laughs> and then the beginning of the second week it started feeling a little, oh, I don't know about this. And by the end of the second week, all right, I really missed, you know, having people to talk to and and share things with. So so that's my outer limit. It's like two weeks, maybe 15 days, and then I'm done. <laughs> um, so I, I guess, yeah, the online, again, the online community is helpful. And one of the things that's been uh, very heartening about the online community is that a lot of people have turned it into face-to-face -face meetings. So, um, and that's been wonderful too. And then they post pictures of here's another community of single people member that I got together with and here's what we did. And, and so that's kind of fun. Now, you know, you can't really count on that because there aren't enough people in any one place unless you live in London or Los Angeles or, you know, someplace like that. Um, but it's it's something, you yeah, know. It is something. It, it there's nothing in the world that makes me happier than seeing photos of a meetup from my Facebook group. Nothing yeah. makes me happier at all. It is the greatest joy to see people actually like making friends. Right. It's such a beautiful thing. I've made so many new friends since ending online dating and starting this podcast. I never had one relationship result from online dating in 11 years of doing it, but in oh like God. a month of doing this podcast, I had all these new friends. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. And I had that too. So when people come I live in outside of Santa Barbara in this little town called Summerland. And when people I don't know but know my work or are part of the community when they come but when they travel and come by, you know, we'll get together, and it's wonderful. And some of them who live not too far away, we, I've actually become friends with. So, you know, it's been wonderful. That's so cool. I love that. I yeah. love that so much. Yeah. In our line of work, our lines of work, um, yeah. I've certainly experienced this. I don't know if you ever have, but I've gotten comments either online or in person, and certainly like sideways glances that somehow suggest to me that I should feel ashamed of this work that I'm doing. Like I should be embarrassed to have so closely aligned myself and my work with being single or with single life or with enjoying being single as yeah. if that is to my detriment. And um, I don't think it is for the record, but I was wondering if you have ever <laughs> felt similarly. And um, if you have felt that way, what has your uh, response been? Well, I got that from the most surprising and disappointing place, which is from fellow scholars and social scientists. I, you know, I mentioned that I had this previous area of research on, you know, lying and detecting lies, and I think people just could not believe that I would kind of leave that behind and embrace this area of studies of single studies, and um, and it was very hard to get them to take it seriously. And 
um, I wrote this article in an academic journal. It was called something like Singles in Society and in Science or something like that. And there were these others who wrote back, wrote commentaries. And they would say things like, well, you know, it's only an issue at a certain age. Or you know, they kind of dismiss it that way. Or um, I tried to get a grant, grant money to study some of this stuff. And I actually got people who, who wrote in response to my grant proposal. You know, why don't you study romantic relationships instead? <laughs> so... Um, and then people trying to be dismissive about singleism, you know, that it really isn't there, or it's not important, or it's not worth studying. And, and again, these are people who pride themselves on being open-minded, and some of them even study other kinds of stigma, other kinds of isms. And yet, they really looked askance at me for wanting to be a scholar of single life. And that was stunning. That was really gobsmackingly stunning. And of course, at the time, there were very few social scientists who were doing this. I don't know if anyone at the time would have identified themselves as a social scientist of single life. I mean, maybe in the humanities, women's studies, there are people who wrote about these issues. But in, you know, on my area of social psychology or related fields like sociology, um, it wasn't. Now, it's started to change now. There are more people who are committing to it and starting to study it. So I think it's getting better. But wow, I just did not expect to be treated so dismissively by academics. I hope that that has gotten better over time. Yeah, it has. It has, happily, as more people start to do it. It's kind of um, hard to ignore your, like, volume of work on this topic. Oh, it happens. You know, there was just recently an op-ed in the New York Times saying something like, can you be your own soulmate or something? And the person quoted only people who study marriage or romantic relationships. They didn't bother with any single right. authorities at all. Everyone they quoted was married and studied marriage or romantic relationships. It was like stunning. Then they've you only know, written half the piece. Yeah, yeah. And yet totally unselfconscious about it. I'm sure this author thought there was absolutely nothing wrong with the article that was written. And of course it went by the editors at the New York Times. Everybody who saw it and approved it thought, yeah, let's write an article about single people and only quote married people and people who study marriage. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Oh my god. Well, that sets up my last question for you beautifully. <laughs> okay. Um, why do you think the world is so obsessed with love, partnership, and marriage? And do you think the world is afraid to be alone? <laughs> you know, there we've built up this whole whole storyline, this mythology, this ideology, and it's a powerful one. It says, all you need to do is find the one, commit to the one, and your whole life will fall in place. You'll be happier, you'll be healthier, you'll live longer, you'll never be lonely again. All of your dreams will come true. I mean, imagine if that were true. I mean, who wouldn't want to sign on to something? You do this one thing and magically your life becomes a fairy tale. I mean, even, it's, it's a very disparaging story about single people. And yet, single people find it attractive, so they sign on to it too. So that's one thing. What they're selling is very powerful. And of course, it's emphasized and by you know, movies and TV shows and books and um, everyday conversations. So that's part of it. Another part of it is it's built into so many religions and politics and you know the institutions of our society. Our whole society is built around the couple. I mean, how often do you see um, an event and it'll tell you what the price of the tickets are per couple? <laughs> <laughs> 
Those are the only people who are welcome to go. So, um, so yeah, I think part of it is, too, a fear of loneliness. And you can see that, too. I, I often look this up as an academic. There's a place you can go to see how many articles or books have ever been written on a given topic. So I'll type in loneliness. And there'll be thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. <laughs> and then I'll type in solitude. And there'll be hardly any. You know, so it's like the way we think about alone time is suffused with this anxiety, this fear, oh my God, I might be lonely. And instead, it doesn't give enough credit to the possibility that instead, oh, I have time to myself. I might be relaxed, I might be more creative, I might be more productive, I might be rejuvenated, I might, you know, I might do better having time to myself. And so um, that's the kind of counter story I'm trying to tell. So, you know, it's not that I think there's no loneliness and that's not a problem, but I think that we overemphasize a certain way of thinking about things. And it's the same thing with romantic relationships. I'm not anti-romantic relationships. If you want to be in one, go for it. But what I'm against is the overvaluing of one kind of relationship or one kind of life and the devaluing of all the others. Same here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't tell you how how nice it is to talk to you. If, if I have enjoyed this this much, I'm I'm thoroughly hoping that my audience feels the same. I the first time I read one of your pieces in Psychology Today, seriously, it really had an impact on me, and it made me want to follow your work and connect with you because we're it's just for the community aspect alone. Me being a selfish person, I wanted to connect with you, but like I I also think that this audience really needs to hear what you have to say because I love how um, I mean you're. You're a social scientist. Everything is rooted in all of the research that I could never, you know, I can never gather myself and, and put together myself because it's just not my field. But oh you've, my. you've presented something that I think is going to help a lot of people feel a lot better. And you continue I, to do so all the time. And I thank you so much for that. If, thank you. If someone wants to start reading your work and they're like me and they're on Amazon and they have no idea where to start, where do you <laughs> suggest they start reading yeah. your books? Absolutely my first one, singled out, how single people are stereotyped, stigmatized, and ignored, and still live happily ever after. I mean, that work was such a work of passion for me. Now, there are a bunch of others, but a lot of the other ones are um, collections of like blog posts and other articles I've written around a certain theme, so they're a different kind of book. They're the kind of one that it's easier to kind of um, dip into, read one or two things, and then come out and read something else, and you don't have to go from start to finish. And you don't have to single it out either. But I it. recommend that you do go start to finish. I recommend that you have a pen and sticky notes while you read it. And Thank like, you. Write things down and stick them on the mirror when you need to come back to them because I think you're going to feel a lot better after reading it. Bella, thank you so, so much for joining me, for joining this podcast audience. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, and thank you for all that you do, too. Thank you. I appreciate that.